Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We've got you for an hour now of science, and we've got three amazing guests coming into the studio today. Also with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm excited. So You're good excited? to be here on a Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've had the joy of being here three weeks in a row now because we had I our know. great radiothon shows, yes. and you know, it's a good Sunday when you come in here. Yes, indeed. And Dr. Yun, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed today, folks. And uh, just a big shout-out, actually, to a few people who have subscribed to the station. You can still do this, but Anna Kingston from uh, Elaine from uh, to Radio Marinara. And uh, thank you very much, Anna. Maya Gumano from Richmond. Uh, Alan Peace from Sassafras. Uh, subscribing, Dines, don't go, go. A donation of $15. Thank you. Uh, Nana Jack from Thornbury. and Crawford from St Kilda. Ross Rathbone. Uh, subscribing and giving a $200 donation. He says, best station in the universe. We would agree. Yes, very cool. <laughs> uh, Bruce McDonald from uh, Tawanton uh, to Vital Bits. Fiona Lang from Woodend. Love Sunday mornings with Triple R. We do too. Thank you, Fiona. And Neil A. Fletcher from Belmont. Also uh, subscribing with a donation of $85. And Moira White from Craigieburn, who's subscribed to Einstein and Gogo. And says, it's educational, not just bringing us amazing science and culture, but the fantastic music that makes my neurons multiply. <laughs> I've never had anyone say something nice about the music I play before. Thanks, Moira. I really appreciate that. That's a... Moira, you've made Shane's day. I know. Usually I get, get the opposite. Uh, well, you know, there you go. Some people have taste, and Moira is one of them. Thank you very much. Anyway, we should uh, get on with the show. But thank you to all those people subscribing. If you want to help Triple R out, folks, you can do it. Just get online, rrr.org.au, and uh, support the station. Yeah. Anyway, uh, moving right along. In the studio with us now is Tamron Barter. Tamron is a provisional psychologist and PhD candidate in the Com- Computational and Systems Neuroscience Laboratory at Monash University. Tamron, welcome back to Triple R. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a few months since I was here last for the 20 PhDs yeah. in 20 minutes, but yeah, it's good to be back. We only gave you a minute. You, I yeah. know, I know, I know. <laughs> Tamron, take it as a sign of how great you were that Shane now wants to make sure you get an extra few minutes beyond yeah. that one. Yeah, we figured an extra nine or ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see what I can come up with. <laughs> Sounds good. Now, um, now, you work in the area of Huntington's disease, which, are, you know, disturbingly, my namesake, I don't mm-hmm. like that, but... Um, Tell us a little bit about the disease before we talk about your studies in depression. Yeah, of course. So it is a relatively rare neurodegenerative disease. We don't have amazing prevalence rates in Australia, but the best guess we have at the moment is about every eight in 100,000 people. So we're thinking just a few thousand in Australia. And it is caused by a singular gene expansion on chromosome 4. Um, And it's on the short arm there. And everyone has this gene, but not everyone has this mutated or expanded expansion. Um, So with that expansion, um, we can see about 40% of the disease onset kind of predicted by the length of this expansion. And then the rest of the, um, I guess, reasons why the disease starts when it does, which is in midlife, we're not quite sure about. So there's um, epigenetic and Mm. environmental factors as well. 
And so, so just, yeah. so Tam- Tamron, just on mm-hmm. that, so. So I would maybe test for that gene if I had a family member, presumably, and then yeah. there's there's a chance I'll end up with it, but it's not guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, you could test. To be honest, I think the rates suggest about only 20% of people test, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why people might not want to test, um, mm. which are very understandable about what that means for their life and the impact yeah. that that has on what's going to happen for them in the future. But in theory, yes, you can test, and you can also test if, say, you're at risk and um, your partner's pregnant or you're pregnant, you can test as well and test the fetus. Right, yeah. right. And so then what, what does it look like, the onset of Huntington's disease? Yeah, so um, at the beginning, there's three clusters of symptoms. So most commonly people think about the motor symptoms, which is that at the beginning is really chorea, so those dance-like jerky movements mm-hmm. that are typical. But you also have a host of cognitive and psychiatric symptoms um, but at the moment, in terms of diagnosis, we're really only looking at the motor signs. Right, right. Yeah. And what's the sort of end point of Huntington's disease? Like, do, do people die of Huntington's disease? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so eventually you end up in palliative care. Right. And um, at that point, really, um, the motor symptoms become really prominent and you have uh, quite uh, strong apathy and changes in insight. So mm. um, it is fatal. Yep. And there are no current disease-modifying disease therapies available. And, right. and that can happen relatively young, right? I know onset is generally in middle age, but if we think of your um, average life expectancy, mm-hmm. particularly in a country like Australia, that, this mm-hmm. can happen quite young, right? Yeah, and it is really variable as well because um, it depends on the expansion. So we also see jumps in expansions, and uh, you can see juvenile HD where people who are teenagers or really young adults uh, and that is um, a much more rapid uh, decline but yeah so some people only get signs and symptoms when they're in their 70s some people in their 40s but most of the time it's between mid to late 30s 40s you really yeah. start seeing it it's, it's incredible when you hear about mm. these diseases like i mean because there's there's huntington's disease there's als there's alzheimer's i mean is there connectivity between these or is huntington's the only one with a clear gene sort of derivative there Um, No, I mean, with certain, like, young-onset dementias, there are genes associated with them, but um, it's my understanding that Huntington's disease was the first one that we really found a singular gene that explains it. Um, But, yeah, we can see in Alzheimer's disease and in... Uh, other neurodegenerative diseases, there are some genes associated. It's not yeah. my area of expertise, but, but I know they are there. Yeah, yeah interesting. Now, your your work is um, very much on looking at depression in <laughs> patients, and, and I suppose it's it's a fascinating space you're in because it's are people getting depression because of the fact that they've got Huntington's, or is it the disease itself making changes in the brain that is causing the depression? How, how do you even start investigating the difference between those two? Well, luckily, I'm not the first, so there is a little little bit of research there. Um, And the short answer is it's definitely both, but there are some hints and signs that there's something happening at the neural or uh, disease process level. And so some of them are, because it is a familial disease, we can, so it runs in families, we can look at siblings and other relatives and kind of test them both. And we see that people with the gene expansion show higher rates of depression and depressive symptoms as their first-degree relatives, so their siblings. Even though they've had the same upbringing, um, at that point they have the same level of risk, so they don't even know they have HD at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can see that there is 
something probably going on at the neural level as well. Um, because once we take into account all the other shared environmental factors, we are seeing higher rates of the of depression. Presumably timing has a lot to do with this, right? I remember, so way back, picture me in year 12, Dr Shane. Yep, done. Year 12 biology, and uh, we got to basically pick a disease that we wanted to learn about and write about, and I chose Huntington's disease because I thought it was such a fascinating thing. And I remember at the time putting myself in the headspace of somebody who, you know, if you know this runs in your family, you know, the, the mental health impacts of knowing this is a possible trajectory for your life do you get tested don't you get tested do you want to know don't you want to know do you end up caring for a family member knowing that could be how your life pans out as well like so the timing of the depressive symptoms is presumably really important you know is it tied in actually with the progression of the the disease or is it the anxiety and the depression that comes with knowing this is a possible future is it because of experiencing symptoms or worrying that you're experiencing symptoms i mean to me i just find it such a fascinating and very scary disease yeah and teasing that apart is really difficult because you also have to consider that depression is not the only psychiatric change going on Mm. so we know in the later stages of the disease like lots of dementias insight reduces apathy increases so really we do see a drop in depression because these kinds of things uh, these other psychiatric symptoms kind of take over the picture a little bit Um, but yeah in terms of when we see it the most it's really just before uh, before they cross over that threshold where we say okay now you have HD we can kind of see the the motor signs and it's into those earlier stages of that manifest that's what we call that part of the disease yeah when you mentioned earlier that the depressive symptoms are probably a bit of both you Mm. know a bit of you know, I, I'm just depressed for various other reasons in my life or I'm depressed because and because I've worked out I've got this disease, um, but it could also be some sort of structural changes in the brain going on. Do, do the standards for the treatments for depression, and I know they're not perfect anyway, do they, like, do we see them not working as well in HD patients or is there anything we know about that? To the best of my knowledge, I don't think it's been investigated in a rigorous way. It's just done. So at the moment, really, they do rely on treatments as they exist uh, for the general population. So psychotherapy, Mm. CBT, and then the same kinds of medications are commonly SSRIs. Um, But as far as I know, there haven't been any like clinical trials to look at the efficacy and All the things that you're talking about really make it clear that if we are going to give people, say, psychological treatment for Huntington's disease, it has to take into account all these things that are so unique to what Mm. they've been through, watching loved ones have the disease, knowing that they're going to get it, all those kinds of things as well, which I don't think really has there's been nothing designed that really does that as far as i know yeah yeah that's such a such a complex space i mean it's complex for other people in sort of more generic settings just to get that right so i mean this is like next level again now tamarin in your phd i mean you're you're in you're in a computational and systems laboratory What, what does it look like day to day for you yeah yeah so um i mean when i'm doing working on my phd i'm lots of computer time and lots of MATLAB trying to learn how to code (laughs) because I definitely don't come from that background. I come from a psychology (laughs) background. So the first time I tried coding, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but we make it work. So it's mostly I'm using existing large data sets, working with resting state fMRI data, lots of coding, lots of yeah, that's pretty much a typical day for me. So, so what do you? Sorry, fascinated now. What do you see in the resting state MRI? I mean, mm. what what are you seeing in the brain there? What are you what are you observing? Yeah, so 
I'm doing a type of analysis. So when we're thinking about connectivity, I guess to kind of pair it back, we can kind of look at three different levels. And my supervisor uses this really great analogy, which I've stolen because it works really well. <laughs> um, so we can think about structural connectivity. So they're the roads of the brain and we're looking at kind of at the white matter architecture. And then we can look at functional connectivity, which kind of gets a sense of the traffic, but we don't know which way the cars are driving, right? But we can kind of see that there's traffic between regions. Then effective connectivity, which is the kind of research I'm looking at, we try to model the direction of the traffic. So Mm -hmm. we're trying to get a sense of the order of the flow between these kind of large-scale networks that we expect to be involved in certain processes when the brain's at rest. God, that's wild. (laughs) And that's very small scale, these pathways, yeah? Yeah, it depends. I mean, yeah, and and to be honest, a lot of them have been really well studied. So I don't know if you guys have heard of, say, for example, like the default mode network and these kind of large-scale networks. They've been really well studied, particularly in um, models of depression in the general population. So we do have a pretty good sense of what, I mean, we might expect in a general population. And then I'm kind of applying that to people with, pre-manifest hd and Mm. seeing if it's similar or different yeah Yeah. interesting and look you you know you mentioned at the start about a thousand people in australia that is not a small number like that is a lot of and and the impact that has on families and their occupations and their dreams everything else is Mm. quite substantial we often we see so many of these um you know relatively small numbers of groups affected by devastating illnesses and this is one of those you know where a thousand people are really having their lives like just thrown completely up in the air and and so forth as a result so it's great that you're working on this and i think especially around the depression angle because that's something that obviously changes the quality of life for people over decades um you know big time so Tamron, good to have you in for more than a minute. It still went by. You were right. It still went by really quickly. I think I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> Look, it's a great topic. Um, how long to go on your PhD? Oh, still a while. I think another couple of years. But you know, I, the answer I like people to give these days is: Will you finish before we put humans back on the moon? Um, I really hope so. I love doing a PhD, but I don't want to be doing it forever. <laughs> Fantastic, uh, Tamron Bada. Great to have you back in the studio. Thanks so much for chatting to us, and good luck with the PhD work. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Three. the studio with us now is adam pascali who is the chief scientist in the seismology research center here in melbourne adam welcome to triple r good morning and thank you for taking my last minute tweet at like 11 o'clock last night or whatever <laughs> absolutely fine i'm looking forward to being we, able to come on yeah we were talking about cookies or something and i just said what do you do and they said oh, i'm a seismologist get in the studio there's stuff going on and he's here as in just today from a conversation last night yeah that's impressive. That's what happens when uh, Dr. Shane's bored on a Saturday night and he's sitting around. <laughs> the um, positive power of social media. People diss it all the time, but yeah, look, it can lead yeah. to this. Happens. Anyway, uh, Adam, first of all, before because we want to talk a little bit about what's happened in Morocco because that's obviously a, a fairly mm. substantial event and yeah. a lot of loss of life there. But before that, I wanted to sort of go back and talk about the Seismology Research Centre because this is something that I suspect a lot of people aren't aware exists or its role. So, so give us a bit of history on that. 
So the seismology research centre started in 1976. Uh, it was established at what was back then Preston Institute of Technology. Oh, yeah. It became yeah. Philip Institute, then yep. it was taken over by RMIT. Um, and, uh, and we were there until 1998. And uh, because we were completely industry funded for uh, by the end of that, mm. um, so we were being funded by mainly the water industry and monitoring around their catchments yep. uh, for, for earthquakes. Um, we were seen as a business within the university, so they decided to sell us off to private industry. Right. So, um, so, but we've continued to do um, everything that we were doing, um, but we've been able to also do extra things like develop seismic instruments ourselves uh, under under private um, ownership. So, um, but we still run our observatory, and we we are very proud of what we do in uh, in Southeast Australia. Yeah, wow. Now, in terms of your clients, who who pays you to tell them about earthquakes and seismic? activity so yeah as i mentioned we started off with the water industry and, and that right. was um mainly from melbourne water or melbourne metropolitan border works back then right. um when they were planning to build thompson dam which is uh, melbourne's yeah, yeah. main water yeah. supply yep. so they wanted to understand what the uh, seismicity was in that region before they started and then what would happen afterwards and uh, because a reservoir triggered seismicity is a yep. thing yep. and it was in that case so they uh, we we got a baseline for a number of years uh they started impounding the reservoir of all, we started seeing some shallow earthquakes, and that culminated about 13 years after impoundment in a magnitude 5, wow. pretty much right under the dam, 11 yeah. kilometres deep, but it was obviously engineered to withstand that, mm. So, um, yeah. and, and that's sort of how we started, and that expanded then to a whole bunch of different water authorities across Victoria, and now into Tasmania and South Australia and New South Wales as well. Yeah, that's what. So, so they built the dam, and that led to, so, sorry, was that causal? Yes. Yeah, right, yeah. so you built the dam, a lot of extra mass in that area and yeah the weight of the water the mm. increased pore pressure so water sitting somewhere uh, where it normally wouldn't sit uh, yep. seeps further down lubricates nearby faults as well right. um, so that can trigger events but now we're almost back to sort of background levels of seismicity in that right. region so the, it's adjusted yeah nice wow, I had um, no idea yeah. I've it's never thought stuff, of that before that yeah. by making a dam you're actually changing kind of the geology yeah Incredible. and you can presumably you can keep an idea on uh, people doing fracking as well Oh, and all sorts of yep. stuff, yeah, because you pick up... Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so we're, yeah, we're, we're supplying a lot of instruments into Texas at the moment because they're yep. doing that water, salt water injection. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, our instruments are used for that as well. So that's all triggered seismicity. So whenever you change the stress field in an area, there's a possibility of uh, inducing earthquakes. Yeah, interesting. Now, you provide a... Is it a 24-hour service? Mm-hmm. So how does that work? I mean, is there someone just sitting there? Like, because we're in Australia. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but there aren't massive quakes every other week. We get a lot of little ones. Yep. But is there someone sitting there eating a bag of Doritos just hoping for the best at 2 a.m. in the morning? Is that you, Adam? Well, we, we do share that around. I'm on for a couple of weeks at a right. time. So, yeah, we have two duty seismologists on uh, at all times. Yep. Uh, so they're getting notifications all throughout the day and night. Um, and uh, if there's something significant, then we respond and, and send out the emergency alerts right. to all of the stakeholders that need to be told. And I usually do the social media posts of it yep. pretty quickly after that as well. Yeah, that's wild. And where does the data come from? Like, what's your distributed sort of network? of sensors? So we've got about 100 stations uh, feeding data uh, into our observatory. Uh, well, our system is a sort of an online cloud-hosted data service, yep. and, and so all the data is going into there, and we get those notifications. So all those stations are located throughout South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria, and New South Wales, yep. uh, a couple up in Queensland as well. So that data is coming in. It's being associated. So if something happens on more than one station within a few seconds, it's probably an earthquake, not a kangaroo jumping past one of them or a <laughs> tree falling over. So Wombat falling. Out of the tree. Exactly. Come on, surely a bit of drop there. Come yeah. 
<laughs> so we do uh, vet those locations and then we, we use a little app to, to verify the location and magnitude and then get that information out there. Yeah, that's cool. So as Shane was saying, you know, Australia, we think of it as being relatively stable and not this sort of fairly volatile place. But mm-hmm. we've obviously had some events in recent times. What, what is normal for Southern Australia? Sort of how many events would you expect to see over a year and, and what's the range in terms of the size of an event and so forth? Some of these ones we had recently, I think, have been aftershocks, am I right? Yeah. But yeah, so we, we put out a, an earthquake map on social media every week, and, and yeah. it, within that region of southeast Australia, we're seeing 30 or 40 earthquakes that we, yeah. we detect. Mm-hmm. Most of them are pretty small and won't be noticed. Um, we'll get a magnitude 2 every week or yeah. 2. Um, last week, I think there were three magnitude 3s in, in that region. Big so, week. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> and, and, yeah, we, we did have that yeah. big event in 2021, and we have had some aftershocks, yeah. the, the largest being a 4.7 earlier this year yeah. to that's that right. same event. That. Yeah. Um, and we also had a, one recently in the north of Melbourne out near Greenvale, yeah. uh, and that was magnitude 4 that was felt uh, across Melbourne. So, yeah, we do have those events. And, um, look, the 5.9 that we had back in 2021 was the largest earthquake ever okay. recorded in Victoria. So yeah. we don't have those mm. very often. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Thankfully, and how much does the so so when when we have these quakes, I mean, how much does both the depth and the type of material we're talking about? So you know, the the particular rocks and soils and so forth. Mm-hmm. How much does that affect what we end up feeling? Oh, hugely. I mean, we do, again, if we go back to that Woods Point earthquake in twenty twenty one, the local area. They they weren't fussed at all about the earthquake. Right. The people in Woods Point, yeah. they all uh, all of their structures are built on on bedrock, so um, right. and they didn't feel it very much. Uh, but in Melbourne, we had a wall fall over in yeah. Chapel mm. Street, and and that probably was due to the sediments that uh, you know that's a river sediment area, and that amplification of, of seismic signals can happen if you got. Um, loose soil that can sort of vibrate and amplify the signal. So um, your range to the earthquake and, and what you're on makes a huge difference of how you experience the earthquake. Interesting. So my, my background uh, is in physics, but it's in optics. And so one of the things, you know, we love is focusing stuff. Do, do you find that the energy from earthquakes can be focused by the material um, you know, it ends up even stronger in certain areas than it does in others. Does that happen? There, there is a directionality to some events, um, depending on how the rupture goes as well. So energy can propagate in certain directions mm. more, and that's why we do things called isoseismal maps, which are basically just a, a map of with circles and uh, how it was felt over over distance. And that isn't just circles; it mm. tends to be ellipses, and, mm. and energy tends to be felt in certain areas more than others. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's wild stuff. Uh, I think I think it's amazing too. Like the thing we often don't think. About is that um, earthquakes are our sort of microscopy of the earth you know so our way of examining the structure and we see on on mars at the moment they're monitoring the mars quakes with mm. the insight um craft and but there's one they've got like can you imagine doing your job with just one detector oh it, like, it, it's amazing <laughs> what they can do with yeah. just a single seismograph it's incredible yeah, really. incredible stuff now um on a more, more sort of well i was going to say more serious note but what you do is pretty serious especially mm-hmm. if it's at 2 a.m yeah. um but in morocco at the moment um you know there's a huge uh humanitarian disaster there in the sense that you know quite a substantial quake which my, my understanding is was fairly shallow mm-hmm. um hit there i think it was, was friday for us um yeah, yeah friday yeah. evening yeah, yeah. um Tell us about that, Adam. What, what, what's made that so problematic over there, that particular quake? So that was a, a pretty big quake, 6.9, uh, the biggest one that they've recorded in the last 
well, they're biggest on record, really. They haven't right. had a magnitude six plus event at all ever. Right. So, uh, and and that um, so they're not really well prepared for. Mm. I mean, they mm. are better prepared than some places for for large earthquakes, but they haven't had very many. So, a lot of the structures, again, then they're built too rigidly. They're, they're yeah. mud construction, um, so they're not earthquake resistant buildings. So, you're going to get um, more damage from that. The fact that it happened, I think it was quarter past eleven at night. Yeah. Um, that tends to to cause a lot more uh, fatalities as well. So, yeah, it's a, ter- a terrible event. Yeah, and that was a fairly shallow quake, I understand? Yeah, so the, the depth of the, the earthquake, I think it was initially at around 10 kilometres. I think they've settled on about 17. So, But right. that's relatively close to the surface. Most of these large events happen mm. at plate boundaries, and they can be happening at a few hundred kilometres deep as the, as the crust is sort of going back into the, uh, you know, the molten earth. Mm. Um, so when you have a large earthquake that, that's close to the surface, it can really have a, a big impact on the local population. Yeah. Is that a plate boundary? That's near Marrakesh it was near, I think. Is that right? So is that the, plate the, the plate boundary is about 550 kilometres to the north. So right. it's not actually a plate boundary yeah. event. It's more like, you know, like Australia in that we're within a plate. It's not as far away from a plate boundary as we are here but still it's sort of within a plate so and we can have earthquakes of that magnitude as well so it's you know it's an intraplate event yeah interesting I, I i remember someone saying to me once that you have to think of these old plates as um you know they were all smaller pieces and they got stuck together at some point and where they were where they were stuck those lines of those fracture points are still there yeah and so even though we're in the middle of it tectonic plate here in Australia, it was made up of other bits at some point. Is that, is that right? Yeah, so the, the plate itself is made up of millions of years of rocks folding on top mm. of each other. Uh, and, and the fact that we're just not on a plate boundary anymore, it doesn't mean that that's one solid mass. Mm. And the faults where we have earthquakes is where two... Uh, Parts of rock are sort of pressed against each other and holding each other by friction. Yep. And then when that stress gets too big, they break along that, that join, basically. Yeah. yeah, it's wild stuff. Adam, are you, uh, are you hypersensitised to earthquakes? I mean, if you're out and something happens, you can sort of tell the difference between the quake and just, uh, you know, 80 wheeler. A big track. I probably haven't <laughs> felt as many earthquakes as, uh, as you might think. I've, I've felt probably as many as most people in Melbourne, mm. actually. But uh, I, I was certainly more attuned to it after the, 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 that first event, as a lot of people are. So now mm. we get lots of people saying, mm. you know, is that a quake? Because yeah. once you've felt something yeah. like that, you are sort of tuned to it and go, okay, my house is creaking. Is that another event, you know, happening right now? So, uh, yeah, I, I'm a bit hypersensitive. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that uh, people are not aware of, but I suppose in, in, in one sense, because they often don't perceive this when they see, see them films and so forth, is the noise. Mm-hmm. You know, often there's a lot of noise associated with quakes, which can be quite scary. You know, it's sort of like, um, you know, if a truck goes past your house, you often you don't hear so much. But, you know, with a quake, the, the rumble and the noise can be quite substantial. Yeah, and, and there are different types of noises. Mm-hmm. If you're very close to the epicenter, like the people who were in Greenvale and Craigieburn mm-hmm. for that event, they, they heard a big bang. And that's, right. that's the, the earth sort of acting like a speaker. As we, with a yep. shallow event, it's pushing air. It's, it's, it's making sound waves. Um, when you're further away, what you're generally hearing is the building noise, the rumbling of the buildings mm-hmm. um, and, and the infrastructure around you, uh, not so much the actual bang of the earthquake itself. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite fascinating. I think um, we all have different perceptions. There's, I mean, I remember the first time I, I was in the US, which was back in, I want to say, 90, Christmas of 93, 94, and there was a very major earthquake um, there at that time. And I... I had not experienced anything like it. It was full on. And I was, I was thankfully, I was on the 10th floor of a building, which was designed to you know, move around. And I was like, well, what can you do here? Yep. You know, just 
ride it out but um there were freeways collapsed and so forth in the nearby area and but the the overall experience of it was like quite phenomenal like just how much and en- just i couldn't get my head around how much energy was being mm. released that sort of blew me away yeah it, it really the, the but the fact that it's a logarithmic scale and mm. the, the energy scale is like 30 times per right. per unit as well so again if we look at this uh, event in morocco that was uh, a five point uh, 6.9 which is yep. 10 times bigger but that's 30 times more energy yeah and imagine uh that being even closer to what we experienced uh, yeah. back then in uh, a few years ago that the, the people in, in marrakesh and in morocco mm. would be uh, yeah shaken pretty hard yeah look it's rough stuff and i know the the um the death toll there is quite substantial and you know i think it's one of those things where we're not going to see the full extent of the damage for quite a few weeks yeah um but um this is happening more and more yes around the world well actually that's probably not true is it is, is it are we getting more quakes lately? i don't think we're getting more quakes we are certainly hearing about them a lot yeah. more quickly uh, yeah. I think, again yeah. social media yeah. is a, a way of mm-hmm. getting information out immediately we don't have to wait for the evening news anymore yeah. to hear about yeah. the, an event and then it's over at the end of that article you know we yep. you know we yep. we hear about it we're getting updates so i think more information is giving that perception that things are happening yep. more often but not probably really. not more often yeah yep. there's more humans though being affected so that's Absolutely. probably part of it yeah and yep. um, Great to chat to you. Uh, you know, I hope uh, you don't have too many of these 2 a.m. Uh, wake-ups. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep that image of you just sitting back in a sort of in a big beanbag, bag of Doritos, going nuts, <laughs> watching old episodes of X-Files and, you know, just hoping something comes up on the screen. So Absolutely. That's, that's the image we'll put or, out. Or maybe hoping it doesn't. Adam <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Pascali, uh, Chief Scientist from the Seismology Research Center. Thanks so much for coming on the show. More than welcome. Triple R. Folks, you are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. A big thank you to Dean Ninas, who is also a seismologist, who's listening to the show and has subscribed and apologised for missing the Radiothon period the other week. Apparently, she was out chasing active faults. <laughs> that's a fair reason. Yeah, I reckon that's fair. Okay. That's okay. They can't judge. And uh, Frankie the Kelpie Cross from St Kilda East has uh, renewed their subscription to On the Blower. Thanks, Frankie. Yeah, appreciate that. Also got a message from my son, James. Apparently he's uh, denying that he plays a song around the house. <laughs> you wait till I get home, James. It's going to be on, fella. It's going to be on. Uh, in the studio with us now is Dr. Daniel Heath. Uh, Daniel is from Biomedical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Daniel, welcome to the station. Hey, good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, you're uh, doing some amazing bioengineering stuff but it's in particular it deals with the issue of coronary heart disease so before we get into what you're doing tell us a bit about what's happening in that kind of heart disease what's going on well obviously heart disease is or cardiovascular disease in general is the number one killer globally and a large of that a large portion of that healthcare burden is focused on cardiovascular disease so Mm -hmm. coronary heart disease this is where you have blood vessels that feed oxygenated blood to your heart they get occluded by fatty plaques largely due to diet and exercise or lack thereof and this can lead to heart attack and death of the patient there are many others also including say for instance aneurysm stroke so on and so forth but mostly we focus on uh coronary heart disease yeah and and in that case uh, you know i've had family members who've had this which makes me scared daily uh but um you know often what they'll do is they'll do bypass surgery yes. so so what what happens there that's where they they take a vein from somewhere else in the body exactly so they'll take a 
we'll call quote unquote less important vein or mm-hmm. artery from elsewhere yep. in the body and use that to reroute the blood supply essentially around the occlusion. So for instance, maybe 20 years ago, my grandfather had a quadruple bypass surgery. Yep. Um, and that works really well for a lot of patients, though those bypass grafts tend to fail after several okay. years. And the bigger problem is that a lot of patients, particularly those with comorbidities such as diabetes, tend to lack those donor vessels. Yeah. So they don't have those available. And there's not much you can do for patients under those circumstances. Yeah. Presumably, it's not just about them not having them for that surgery. You you may need them for other things as yes, well. Um, exactly. I know, you know, I'm going through this with a family member at the moment mm-hmm. where they're, you know, dialysis is, is in yep. play and you know it's sort of like oh why aren't they putting the port in this arm oh it's well that, that's where they you know took the the um, required artery for a bypass years ago so exactly yeah you know, it's, it's a it's a vicious cycle that yes. people get into so exactly okay so and donor vessels uh, donor arteries is that a thing so the challenge you have with that is the fact that it's the same thing that you would have with say any sort of organ transplant Mm. is that the body is really good at recognizing non-self. Yep. If you take a donor vessel and you try to put it into another person, you have the possibility of immune rejection. Yep. So by and large, that's not a viable option. Yeah. So easy. Let's just grow some. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about that because that's what you're doing in the lab, right? Yes. Is, is trying to work out can we can we manufacture these? Exactly. So what, I mean, we, we we see all this stuff that maybe about 3D printing, about mm-hmm. taking people's own cells and growing yeah. them up. I mean, what what's the pathway that you're following to try and grow arteries? So people have been trying to grow blood vessels for a very long time historically. Like I think the first report of that was 20 or 25 years ago. Right. Um, The challenge we run into is obviously, what is a good cell source? How are you going to harvest the necessary cells from the patient? Um, How are you going to get it to have the appropriate mechanical properties? Because obviously it needs to be able to not rupture uh, because of blood pressure. And is it going to integrate with the host? Is it going to behave like a normal vessel? And it turns out the blood vessels are actually pretty complicated tissues. Like, it would be easy to oversimplify them into just a tube that allows blood to pass. Mm -hmm. But um, the interior lining is lined with this layer of specialized cells called endothelial cells. And you can think of them uh, simply as little anticoagulant factories. So they Mm -hmm. tend to produce things that keeps blood flowing and prevents it from clotting in our blood vessels. Um, And then around that are rings of these what are called vascular smooth muscle cells, which provide strength and also um, help regulate blood pressure. So growing vessels in the lab that have these necessary properties Mm. and components is quite challenging. And it's usually quite time-consuming and requires a lot of expensive and specialized equipment, such as bioreactors. So so when you say time-consuming, what are we talking about here? Like, I need a new vessel, are we talking weeks, months? Weeks to months. Right. So, And and if you're producing a lot of those, presumably you're not producing them en masse. Yes. That's one at a time, right? Yeah, exactly. So scalability becomes a big problem. Yeah. So one of the things we try to focus on in our lab group is developing engineering technologies that allow us to make... Uh, biomaterials and tissue engineering strategies more manufacturable, more scalable, things yep. that we can actually implement and produce in mass. Hmm, interesting. And wh- so how do you actually, like, what does that look like in the lab? Are we talking about yep. vat-based stuff? Are we talking about um, sort of architectures you grow on? Like, Yep. 
Yeah. So the graphs that we recently produced and reported on are hybrids. So part of it is a synthetic material, and part of it is biological and cell-derived. So we started off with this process called electrospinning, which is a way of making really fine polymer fibers. Um, And we spun those onto a mandrel. So we got a tube, essentially, coming out of it. And... That's great. Uh, It provided a lot of mechanical strength. The polymer we used was biodegradable, so it would degrade over time. And hopefully during that time, the body would grow in and create a suitable blood vessel around that. Um, We lined that with our endothelial cells, and they grew on it fine. But in biology, there's a big relationship between form and function. Mm. So we want those endothelial cells to line up in the direction of blood flow. And that tends to be quite important for their behavior. But they Mm. weren't doing that on our fibers because they were just kind of randomly aligned. So we developed this really simple yet really kind of elegant freeze-thaw technique where we took our blood vessel on our mandrel, submerged it in a cylindrical vessel that was mostly filled with water, and then froze it. And then ice is interesting because it's one of the few materials that expands upon freezing. So since it was in this rigid container, those ice crystals grew axially, and they ended up pushing the fibers into partial alignment. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we um, put our endothelial cells on there, and they did exactly what we expected them to do. They ended up spontaneously aligning in the direction of blood flow Mm -hmm. and exhibiting behaviors and morphologies very similar to what you would see in the body. Um, And that was a simple, really scalable technique. It took an hour. It used really easy technologies. Um, The other thing that we did that was interesting is we wanted to also build in that muscle cell layer around Mm, it. Yeah. Uh, Because that is, again, also a critical component for the behavior of the vessel. Uh, So we took our tube that we had done our freeze-thaw technique on, and we put a hydrogel around it. So this is a a material based off of gelatin, which is essentially jello that you Mm. buy at the supermarket, but that's derived from collagen, which is a natural biomolecule. And we found a way to cross-link it together, so it made a stable gel, and we embedded our smooth muscle cells in it. And another thing that's really a critical driver of how cells behave is stiffness. So... um, in fact, like a hallmark of a lot of diseases is that your body becomes stiffer. Too stiff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So what we did is we looked at the stiffness of that surrounding hydrogel layer, and we found really interesting that in an intermediate stiffness, these cells immediately knew what they were supposed to do. They started right. elongating and forming these ring structures around our vessel, and it looked remarkably similar to what we would see with uh, a native vessel. And it was done without having to do any sort of bioreactors or pulsatile flow, which is what you normally have to do in order to cause this formation to develop. Mm. So it was a really simple uh, technique that could be employed in any lab, anywhere, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, in order to produce these vessels. So it was a nice manufacturing step forward in our yeah. ability to produce them. It's wild stuff. I mean, there's quite a few, you know, I, I love it when people bring in the those, like, as you say, what happens when you freeze water? I mean, yeah, this yeah. sort of stuff yeah, yeah. is yeah. really cool. And the fact that that's been brought in as a, as a necessary step for yeah, yeah, manufacturing yeah. is kind of wild. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. Because these are, these are complex structures and it's not, I mean, yeah. it's the thing we always come back to, you know, biology is much better at this than we are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we've got to find some cool tricks in terms of, um, I mean, you mentioned the, the timing and so forth. I mean, if you were working on sunscreen, I'd give you 20 years. Um, but this, <laughs> this is stuff that, you know, for a lot of people, this is, this is kind of urgent technology, yeah. right? I mean, how does ballpark, 
market? You know, are we, are we looking at this being viable within a decade? Is that is that too soon? Jim? I would say a ten-year timeline is an optimistic yeah. best guess. So that's okay. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, not yeah, too yeah, bad. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with putting things in humans. Mm. Uh, we're dealing with lives, so clearly, it has to go through a lot of safety and clinical trials in order to illustrate that this is a safe technology that it does what it's supposed mm. to do. Um, the challenge I see is that with a lot of biomedical sciences is we tend to have what's called that valley of death yep. between what's illustrated in the lab yeah. and what is picked up yeah, clinically yeah, 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 yeah. and commercially. So we're really hoping that we're going to be able to expand on what we've done and push it forward and get it into animal trials and then get it into first in human trials and illustrate that it really has legs and can make large scale commercial and clinical impact. Yeah. Mm. Look, it's super interesting, Daniel. And, um, you know, I think uh, mo- most people listening, I'm sure, have got a, had a family member or have a family member or will have a family member who will go through the need for, for some type of intervention of this type. So it's, you know, it affects everyone, mm-hmm. um, as you say, it's the largest exactly. killer. Yep. Uh, so, and, and these, these sound like really fascinating engineering approaches to it. So thank you so much yep. for coming in and and chatting to us today on Einstein Gogo. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Folks, that was Dr. Daniel Heath from Biomedical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Three. Triple. Folks, you're listening to Einstein and Gago, and we've just got a bit of time for news. And just updating you on the battle I'm having with my 11-year-old son, James. <laughs> What's the update? Uh, well, he has sent me a message, which I think pretty much seals the deal. He's just sent, you stink. <laughs> I surrender, James. I surrender. We'll have a game of Do chess. Do you really We'll have surrender? a game of chess when I get home. We'll see how he turns out. I reckon out. you're bluffing. James, if you're still listening, <laughs> just, he's bluffing. He's not surrendering for a second. Alrighty, some news. Uh, Dr. Yuan. Well, I thought it is spring, and I'm not sure how many gardeners we got listening, but um, I've been noticing bees popping up. Oh, yeah. um, the weather is increasing. Yeah. Sorry, the temperature is increasing, so the bees are getting more active. Um, and we know bees are super important, right? They, they mm. pollinate all these flowers and crops in many cases, of course, that humans are very dependent on. We also, of course, know, unfortunately, that bees are really struggling around Mm. the world. Um, And I thought I would talk about this study, which has come out and had a look at this in context of pollution and particularly ozone. So um, lots of people have been commenting, in fact, that they're seeing fewer bees in some parts of particularly more urbanised and, and I guess, um, built-up industrialised areas. And this study looked at the effect that ozone pollution has on the ability of bees to detect the chemical trails that flowers put out, right? So flowers are releasing these chemical trails which are essentially saying, come get me, I'm yep. here. And the bees use those chemical gradients that they basically follow along towards the flower. But they're comprised of volatile organic compounds, which basically mean chemical compounds that break break down and disappear quite quickly. So they're, they're ephemeral, which means they basically don't last for very long. Mm. And this study looked at this in a wind tunnel um, with some compounds that bees typically would be tracing to look at flowers and then looked at the the effect that this had on the bees. This is a gentle wind tunnel. (laughs) I I always think of that in terms of like a a, a stealth aircraft or something. This bee kind of just splattered up against the back wall because someone turned it on too hard. That's right. Bees are obviously impressive flyers, but within within reason. Um, And basically what they show that 
this this ozone w- was enough basically to reduce um, you know the availability of these compounds and they basically mm. you know are breaking down very quickly and therefore disappearing and they showed that at different distances that that really affected the plume so you know at six meters from the source um, 52% of bees recognize the plume right they could right. detect it and obviously therefore track down the flower at 12 meters it's 38% and at um, uh, at 12 metres, sorry, it is um, uh, down to 10%. So basically what you're seeing mm. is that the further away you get from this plume, obviously, the harder it is for bees to detect this this plume. But also they found on the edges, right? So if you imagine yep. you're pushing a chemical plume down a wind tunnel on the edges, obviously it's, it's more dilute. It's obviously breaking down more rapidly. So that really the, the take-home message of this is, is that ozone is really having quite a big effect on the ability of bees to actually detect where this chemical signal mm. is from the plants. And it means that they're less able to basically define the flowers and therefore pollinate. Mm. So it's, it's a, I guess it's, it's a another loss, example. Loss, loss for the flowers Another and example the bees. really of, you know, how we humans are kind of buggering things up. And, yeah. you know, as I said before, we're, um, we're heavily dependent on bees for our own survival. So it's yeah. a big problem. Yeah, it's, uh, and they're amazing. I they, mean, they're, they are amazing. They, they're amazing. So they we're dance, screwing they them up. Do maths, they're doing you know. all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're, yeah. yeah, not good. Thank you, Dr. Yuan, Dr. Jen. Well, in the spirit of humans buggering things up. <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry, just you know, stay on a sad note. But I thought we uh, should just talk a little bit about plastic. You know, we know single-use plastics are this huge mm. problem. The latest figures I saw estimated somewhere between one and five million tons of discarded plastic are in the ocean, wow. which is just like it's just a crazy amount, right? So. Of course, there's been huge amounts of work done on how can we reduce plastic use. What are all the different things we could do? The you know the advertising campaigns, the banning plastic use. You know, lots and lots of things. And something that I imagine a lot of people have heard about lately is this idea of a green nudge. A nudge being you know just a little small action that somebody feels like is not a big ask, not a big imposition on them. But if a lot of people follow this kind of suggestion or this nudge, we we end up with a lot less plastic being used. So yep. there was a study that was published this week in. In, um, in science and it looked at the idea of using a green nudge on um, food ordering apps. Right. And so we're talking about, in China, we're talking about 200,000 users on a big food delivery app in China and they just made a fairly small tweak and that tweak was that the default option, rather than having single-use cutlery delivered with your meal, the default option was now you don't get cutlery with your yeah. meal and if yeah, you want yeah. cutlery you have to ask for it yeah. and if you don't get cutlery you get like a nice green badge that tells you you're helping to plant trees and you know so like a, just little nudges Something. to help people yeah. and they had um they had so three cities people in three cities had this nudge given to them um and it turned out that there were then seven other cities that hadn't didn't use this nudge and they you know compared what was going on and essentially it turned out that the nudge was really powerful business didn't drop at all <clears throat> so people didn't stop using mm-hmm. the app to get their food it didn't bother them um uh, with the with all the the big cities where they didn't use this new default of no cutlery, only three percent of orders actually actively asked for no cutlery. But the reverse in the cities where you now had to ask for cutlery, only about twenty percent of people did that. So yeah. we're talking about a massive drop in use of single use cutlery just by a change that took yeah. you know a coder a minute or two to do. And they reckon that if this could be rolled out um, more widely, then twenty one point Seven five billion sets of single-use cutlery Oof. would be saved in a year just in China. 
So I guess it's a reminder just that, you know, we accept the default without thinking too hard. Like, oh, yeah, I get my chopsticks and my fork. That's fine. It's not a big deal. But if we extrapolate that out to thousands and hundreds and millions of people and everyone gets it and maybe uses it and chucks it or doesn't even use it and chucks it, you know, this is a huge area for making little changes with big outcomes. We can certainly reduce things. I mean, recently went to a local bakery, bought some stuff, you know, and and they put it in the paper bag and then it has to go in the plastic bag. And I think they underestimate just how fast. I'm going to eat this stuff. <laughs> You're like, I don't eat a bag. And this stuff's just getting in my way. <laughs> you could just, you could just poke it in my mouth. <laughs> you could just be like Homer Simpson, you know, walking yeah. towards just the bench with your mouth just open. Into your mouth. But, but it's interesting, isn't it? You know, like there are these threshold points yes. um, for bags. Like you know, two items. Mm. Ooh. We better put that in another bag, you know. And so, like, yeah. you don't need to no. be doing that, you know. If, if I'm walking out and I've got stuff falling out of my arms, you know, well, maybe I should have bought a reusable bag. I was going to say, presumably, me, you know? most people yeah. these days are in the yeah. habit of carrying a bag with them. There's still a bit of a default of handing out bags, I find, mm. but um, I'm happy to eat with my hands. But I'm, a, you know, it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Even soup. Uh, well, you certainly rarely need a plastic fork, right? Yeah. You're going to have yeah. access to yeah. something most else. Most things you most can use of something the else. Time. I think it's, um, and, you know, if you're getting stuff to deliver, deliver the home, you have your own. Well, that's calorie. the thing, right? I don't understand that at all. That is weird. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Well, uh, there it is. A big thank you to all the people who have subscribed uh, today to Triple R. We very much appreciate that. Uh, you can keep subscribing all the way until the 4th of October. They've stopped it on that date because that's my birthday and we need to turn attention to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but all the major prizes of that are still available if you subscribe between now and then. So uh, get online and subscribe if you want to support Independent Science Radio and keep getting the sort of amazing guests uh, to listen to that we today had today. Was great. Wow. Yeah. yeah, great. Absolute great guest today. I was really impressed by them all. Fantastic communicators of science. Dr. Yun. Good to see you. Likewise. And good to have you on, Dr. Jen. So good to be here, Dr. Shane. We've got, you've got some of your students coming on in a few weeks. I know, it's very exciting. They're working hard. They're going to be uh, producing the show for us, which will be pretty cool. Uh, Lib's been doing our Twitter feed, folks. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Have a fantastic Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.